Good morning again to everybody. Um, it's a privilege to be here, not only uh, just to be with y'all, but all the women in my life are in the same room. Uh, I have my wife Megan, of course, uh, my sister Julia, uh, my mother, and my southern mother, Tina. Uh, so <laughs> we've got everybody together. <laughs> so that's, that's, it's been a great uh, Thanksgiving for us. I always kind of like to tell a funny story at the, at the beginning of a sermon to sort of get people engaged. Although last time I told a story about my mom backing her car up into another car. If anybody remembers that? She wasn't too happy about that, so I'm not going to tell any more stories about my family. Um, this morning, all I'll say is that just watch out who's in front of you as you leave the parking lot this morning. So That's all I'm going to say. Love you, Mom. Um, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today kind of highlights one of the key disenchantments of the postmodern culture movement. Last week, Randy talked about this a little bit, and, and he had said that postmodernism generally states that there's no absolute truth, okay? that, that in the postmodern world, nothing is true. Now, I'm not a sociologist at all, by any means. Um, I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> but I'll try to exp- expound on this a little bit more, okay? That this idea, the idea is, um, in postmodernism, that the, the value isn't anything that I can experience or that you can experience. Um, a common phrase would be that, that truth is only true if it's true in my reality, if that makes sense. So, so you might hear, you know, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. This is postmodernism. Um, and, and this is, there, there's a widening skepticism among postmodernism among lots of things, um, religion being one of them. Uh, there's a, a survey, a Harris Polls conducted in 1966 compared to ones conducted in 2007. Um, and not only just religion, but there's a widening skepticism that extends to Congress, major companies, higher education, organized labor, medicine, the press, the White House, the Supreme Court, and the military. Okay, People now are more skeptical than when some of you guys were dodging the draft and wearing moccasins and tie-dye. Okay, there is a skepticism that is rampant among postmodernism, especially among institutions that would claim to offer truth or law, okay, especially among institutions or, or corporations that um, make decisions or operate behind closed doors. But one of the values of postmodernism is openness or... Um, Openness or transparency is one of these values of, of postmodernism, is that people now feel a need to, to be able to interact with everything and to comment on everything. Now, if you've ever read like online a news story, anybody read a news story online that has, now they have a comment section at the bottom, have you seen that? Where you can like add your opinion to the news at the bottom of the list. Um, we see this also shows up with things like Facebook. You know, you can update your status and bear your soul to the world. That's transparency. And then other people can comment on it and, or vote on it, whether they like it. You know? <laughs> like, uh, okay, let's see. Preaching right now. So far, so good. Um, you guys can go vote on that on, on Facebook if you 
want to like my status. There's this need now. You can check it. It's there. Um, there's a need now to the, the transparency is everywhere. The, the, the people need to see what goes on before behind closed doors. Okay, this is a need of the postmodern culture. And we're kind of, you could argue that we're either in it or transitioning into it, or maybe this is just a phase that we're going through modernism into postmodernism and onto something else. Again, I'm not a sociologist. I couldn't argue one way or another. That's just kind of what's happening, uh, especially among a younger generation. Um, the, there's this need for transparency and openness and also to be able to discuss and interact. A lot of people, I think, are really kind of nervous or afraid about this idea. Um, they think that, that what it means is that there's no, nothing, no such thing as truth. Um, but that's, I don't think that's exactly what it means. It means that people are really searching for something that they know to be true. That, that your best argument, you can provide, you can have everything nailed. You can have all your points. You could, you could go walk step by step through an argument, and at the end, someone could say, yeah, that sounds okay, but I don't believe it. That's, that's postmodernism. I was at a pastor's conference a few weeks ago in Dallas, and um, a friend of mine, I was there with a friend of mine, and, and you notice just by the, the vocabulary that's being used among church leaders right now. Um, I made up a, a list of, like, buzzwords and that you could hear, like, almost every seminar, someone was talking about these different things. Some of the, and, and what, it, what it shows is that people are now understanding that there's, that there's a difference, that, that, that there's a different way to communicate uh, to, to people in a postmodern culture. Here's some of the buzzwords I wrote down. Um, things like organic, transparent, context, engage, relevant, and authentic. Okay, these are all these buzzwords that are, that are being thrown around. I joked with my friend Andy that, that we can make up like a bingo card, you know, a buzzword bingo card, and just fill out all the spaces with these different buzzwords. And uh, one of the sessions was called Organic Vision, How Clarity Shapes Culture and Creates Movement. Okay, and if I, if I made my bingo card the right way, I could have had a bingo just when they announced the name of the session, <laughs> you know? I use the free space, but, you know, still, the... the that there's, that, but again, it highlights this important idea that culture is longing for something they can see and experience, something that's open and not something that's closed off. Do we kind of understand that this morning? That, that's, that's the idea of postmodernism. So this morning we're going to look at um, a, a passage in the Bible, John chapter 4, um, where it, it kind of highlights, again, this, uh, this idea of transparency. So turn with me this morning to John chapter 4. Um, you're not going to have to stand up. I read out a different translation. And then y'all, we're going to skip around a little bit. So John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 4 of John 4. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria... So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw, draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into town to buy food. I'm going to stop there for a second. 
So we encountered Jesus this morning as he's traveling between Judea and Galilee. And the reason that he was leaving Judea is because the Pharisees in Jerusalem were becoming jealous and upset at the success of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' disciples had been baptizing some people, and the Pharisees kind of got upset and jealous. Um, And we can only kind of assume that Jesus didn't really want to deal with these people at this time. Uh, Every time that he did something, uh, these were like a little group of like whining kids that that they're like, why, why, why? You know, they always questioned everything. They got real jealous at everything that Jesus did. Um, and it's just exhausting to be around people like that sometimes. So Jesus leaves, and he goes off, and he, and he stops in Sychar. He, he sends the guys out to buy some food. Um, they don't have any Kroger's or Publix, so maybe they went to, like, a truck stop. I don't know. Um, so he sends the, guy, the guys out on the mission, and this woman comes, and she sits down. And he engages her. And he asks a very simple, very seemingly innocent question. Will you give me a drink? We're going to look at this morning how this question ignites a radical change in an entire community. So let's keep reading. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We're going to stop there again. So this woman is immediately caught off guard by the question, from this Jewish man. It's important to note here that, that not only was she Samaritan and he a Jew, and that was kind of a no-no to talk between the two of them, but, but she is a woman by herself and he is a man, and women did not speak to men, in, like strange men in public. That just didn't happen. Okay, so she's sort of intrigued here because there's this very politically incorrect, slightly appropriate conversation that's happening here where Jesus would come and ask her for water. So she's thinking, what? And then when, when he asks her for water and she responds to him, and then he offers this living water where she'll never have to thirst again. And she's kind of thinking, like, what is this, a joke? Like, where, I can, how can you even get down there? You can't even get any water. And how is it that I can drink some water and never thirst? Then Jesus starts to get a little bit personal with her. Let's read in verse 16. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So Jesus starts this conversation about water. Okay? And then he offers her living water. And now he's kind of getting her business a little bit. 
Jesus is letting her know that he knows what she knows about her life. He, he says that the, the water that he's offering isn't going to satisfy her thirst for water. The water that he is offering is going to satisfy this deeper thirst that she has been trying to quench with relationship after relationship after relationship. And Jesus is telling her, your search is over. You found me. Um, but she doesn't quite get it just yet, so we're going to keep reading. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we worship must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when, we will, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So immediately, as soon as Jesus brings up the thing about her husband, she tries to change the subject. I think it's kind of funny. Um, If Jesus would have been one of the Pharisees and she had mentioned the thing about the mountain, like they would have gone on that like a dog on a piece of raw meat, okay? You know, there's this, she tries to bring up this theologically controversial issue. You know, should we worship over there? Should we worship here? What are we supposed to do? I don't really want to talk about myself. You know, and she tries to do this with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. And instead he says, well, it doesn't really matter. What God wants is someone that will worship him in spirit and truth. And it doesn't matter where you worship, but it's all about how you worship. And so now she starts to think. She's going, okay, He offers me living water. Um, He knows about my past. He didn't condemn me. And now he's telling me that I have to worship God in truth. Who is this guy? Could he be the Messiah? And Jesus confirms her suspicions and said, yeah, that's me. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, after leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. We're going to skip ahead to verse 39 here. Again, read this on your own time. It's an awesome story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And this is such an incredible story. This routine trip for water for this woman turns out to be a life-altering encounter with the Messiah. Someone I heard talk about this had said that 
that this woman was probably going to the well anyway originally because no one else was going to be there at that time. You know, her business was very out in the open to everyone. You know, having five husbands and getting five divorces and going through and now living with this other guy. But this woman would have been so ashamed of just regular interaction with other people that she would purposefully go at a time when no one else would be there. She didn't want people to get into her business. And yet, John records that, that as soon as she hears that Jesus is the Messiah, she runs back and she tells her town, come see a man who, tells me, who told me everything I ever did. And so all of a sudden, she, her, her complete attitude is completely changed. And she wants everyone to know that she's found a man. This might be the Messiah. When they came, they encountered Jesus for themselves. This is a lot of them that when they had heard her testimony, they believed. And then, a, then more came, and when they, they heard Jesus for themselves, that they believed. And they even said, I love what they say, we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. So when they saw with their own eyes, when they heard with their own ears, they knew that they encountered the truth. This morning we're going to talk about a couple of things that I think this passage highlights really well. Um, And it's about openness and honesty and transparency. Uh, This openness with, with God, openness with ourselves, and also openness with other people. And the first thing I think we need to realize is that we need to, as Christians, we need to be open with God about our lives. For a lot of Christians, for for Christians, it's no secret that before we were believers in Jesus, that we were slaves to sin. You know, it doesn't matter if you were five years old or you were 50 years old. Before you came to know Christ, the Bible says that you were an enemy to God and your sin. But oftentimes we hear these incredible testimonies, you know, about people who have... um, They've been on drugs or alcohol. Uh, they've been addicted to something. You know, maybe they're off worshiping Satan. Um, and a lot of times we get real jealous of their testimonies about how God worked in their lives. And then we look at our own lives and we look at our own sin and we think, you know, my sin's not really all that big. You know, my sin's not really all that dramatic. I never, you know, I was never on drugs or I never got drunk. You know, I never even killed a guy. You know, my testimony is not important. Um, but what... But what the Bible tells us is that, again, that, that sin is sin, and that any sin turns us into enemies of God. Colossians one twenty one says that once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So our sin didn't just make us a little bit messed up and make us a little bit dirty, but it actually turned us into enemies of God. You know, my brother is, is, in, is in Iraq right now in the army, and he's fighting um, not fighting, but, but he's over there. Uh, it'd be like if, if he decided that he was going to join Al-Qaeda, you know, after swearing allegiance to the United States and then turning back and joining Al-Qaeda. This is what we do with our sin when Jesus Christ forgives us, is that we go from being his enemies to being not even just on his side, but to becoming his children. But sometimes we try to hide that sin or we try to think that our sin's not really that big. We try to think that it's not that big of a deal. Nobody really needs to know my story. Um, you know, I was, I'm okay anyway. And sometimes we try to hide that sin from God. But we can't hide it from him. He knows it all. Hebrews 4.13 says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
And so we, we have to be open with God because he already knows all that stuff in our life. You know, we're not fooling God. And for some reason, we like to think that when we're bad, that it's not that big of a deal, that when we sin, that's not, that's not a big concern. Um, but again, that, that, that's not what the gospel is saying. That's not what the Bible says. For people here that have never heard this message before, this isn't a message of like fear. Uh, this isn't a message like to scare people, but it's really a message of hope to understand just how much God loved us. That that sin was so damaging to him that it made us his enemies. You know, to, to realize that we screwed it up, but, but God made the way for us. And he didn't just brush it off and say, you know, that's all right. But he took the punishment, our punishment on himself. Um, and he placed it on the Messiah, this, this Savior of the world, who was nailed to some wood and he hung up to die. Okay, that's, that's, that's our sin. That's the weight of our sin is what it costs. And for people that don't know Jesus, when we're honest with God... He offers you hope and forgiveness and the living water that will quench your thirst forever. For the followers of Jesus, we're honest with God about who we are. Then we should be humble and reminded about the sacrifice that was given on our behalf. And it all starts by getting honest with God. Secondly, after we're honest with God, we need to then become honest with ourselves. To accept the offer for living water the woman at the well had to become honest about who she was. She had to recognize that she had a need that she couldn't fulfill herself. So she had been searching her entire life for this redemptive, unconditional love, and she had gone through man after man after man trying to find it. She had to get honest with herself and realize that that love only comes from God. So it wasn't until Jesus brought up her past that she even recognized that she had a need beyond the water that she was seeking. A lot of times we think that, that we can do life on our own, that, that we can just be good enough, that, that there's something that I can do. Um, if, there's one, if there's one error, I talk to people all the time that, that say that they're Christians, um, and if you ask them how they're going to get to heaven, they say, well, I just have to be good enough for God. That's not how we get to heaven. But Jesus exposes the need of the woman. That we have to understand that we can't save ourselves. You know, he doesn't accost her. He doesn't insult her. He doesn't get indignant with her. He doesn't say, that's right, you had five husbands. And now this guy you're living with, who is he? You know, he doesn't get indignant at her sin. So he offers forgiveness. He offers redemption. Um, it's a good thing that there weren't any Christians there because we probably would have done that to her, that woman. We have a tendency to... When I say we, I mean myself. We have a tendency to point out the things that we see in other people. Um, we pretend like they need to come clean before they can come to God. I don't know how we got that message, but it's kind of out there. Um, and it's like completely opposite of how we came to know Jesus. Jesus saw us in our sin. He saw us when our lives were messed up and dirty. He offers us this water. He doesn't say, clean up your life first. He just says, take it. Trust me. Believe. For believers, when we're honest with ourselves... I think that we're not going to be so quick to judge other people outside the church. That we'll become honest about the sin that's there in our life. We'll offer hope and forgiveness and grace instead of offering people reminders of how they've messed up. And we'll be patient with people who struggle. 
We'll be patient with people who can't accept God's love because they've never really known love before. Um, so, I, so secondly, just kind of pray that God would expose and remove any pride in regards to our relationship with him because we need to be honest with ourselves about who we really are. And finally, we need to be honest with others. And this is where that transparency comes in that we were talking about before. That one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity is this lack of transparency. See, a lot of us like to pretend that that when we become followers of Jesus, that we instantly become perfect. Or that we're supposed to be perfect. And then we try to be perfect, and then when we fail, we just act like we're perfect to everybody else. You know, have you ever been around someone that just all the time acts like they're better than you? It's, it's ingratiating. Is that a word? Uh, it's, it's nauseating. The, the, that you could be around someone that just their aura says, I'm better than you. And yet, how often do we do that to other people, especially to unbelievers? We, sometimes we pretend like we don't have those battles with addiction or lust or pride or control anymore. Um, we need to understand that after we come to faith, that we need to continue to confess because we don't cease to sin. James five thirteen and 16 says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will rise up. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So James is saying here that, that believers must be quick to confess their sin to each other and to pray for each other. And he's saying that the church isn't a club of perfect people, but, but again, it's a collection of broken people who have found the object of their thirst. We need to recognize that when Christians are transparent people, that other people can see Jesus. I think the most powerful part of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well is how free she is once she talks to Jesus. Again, she runs back to her city. She's no longer ashamed of who she was or what she did. All she knows is this man. And I think why that is is because Jesus didn't care. Romans 2.4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And the church has become, I think, very quick to condemn and criticize those on the outside of the church while ignoring a lot of the sin inside the church. That often we kind of point and we point fingers and we see things that other people are doing as opposed to looking, turning around and looking inward, looking at our hearts and exposing our own sin. You know, I don't know why it is that we're so shocked when people who don't know Jesus behave like people who don't know Jesus. It's, it's baffling, but it's true. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to a church that's boasting about a member of their church who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he encourages them to deal with their sin quickly. He writes this, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy. 
an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. See, the world is full of messed up, broken, immoral, greedy idolaters. It's full of that. Paul said that if we were going to not be around them and associate with them, we'd have to leave the world. You know, all of us were like that at one point in time. Some of us still are like this before we knew Jesus. Um, But when a person comes to faith in Jesus, they're given the power of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to remove the sin in our lives after we come to faith. It's not an overnight deal. It's a process that lasts our entire lives. Like our entire lives, we don't become perfect. That God continues to point out things in our own life that we need to work on. Um, it's kind of funny. Last time I preached, I got a call the, the, the Monday afterwards from a 90-year-old member of our church who said that she was convicted because she wasn't sharing the faith urgently enough. 90 years old. You know, we're going to constantly be convicted and pointed out the things in our lives where we, where we fall short of what God expects of us. But the good news of the gospel is that God already knows that. That when you and I, when we come to faith, that he knows we're not going to be perfect. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He understands that we're going to fail. And I think that when we're honest and open about our weaknesses, especially to others, that they can see the power of God working inside of us. That how, how awesome is that to, to know, to see, to look at you and I and to say, man, that, that guy's messed up. He's done some really messed up things in his life, but look at him now. Or look at her now. We see all, all these awesome people in the Bible. Moses, um, who killed a guy. David, who killed a guy and slept with his wife. Um, all the, Paul, who was going around persecuting Christians. All these people who were sinners, their lives were completely messed up and God forgave them, and God used them in such a powerful way. And God offers that to us as well, if we're open and honest about who we are. You know, the Bible could have just easily gone over that, that stuff. You know, David could have taken a, 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 some white out, you know, and gone over his history and go, well, people don't need to know about that. I think people need to know about our shortcomings so that they can know that God offers us grace and forgiveness when we screw up. So that they know that there's more than one chance, and there's a second chance and a third chance. The power of God is at work in us when we admit our faults, we apologize to those that we've injured. We pretend to be perfect. All we do is we steal God's glory for ourselves, and we put an unattainable burden on other people. So God invites us this morning to be open with him, to be open with other people, and to be open with ourselves. He extends the offer of living water to everyone who seeks him, and he promises that we will find him when we seek him with all our hearts. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I just encourage you to get open and honest about your life and to live a life of transparency that people who don't believe will be able to look at you and say, man, that guy's not perfect, but his life is different. That we need to repent to God. We need to apologize to others. We don't want to hide our past, but we want to allow God to use that for his glory. Remember that when you're transparent, people can see God working in your life. I think for people that are new to this whole deal this morning, you know, if you're not a believer, if you just don't really get this, um, you've never really known the forgiveness of Jesus in your life, 
If you're just thirsting and searching for something and you don't know, don't know quite what that is, um, just grab a friend or an elder or someone and just talk to them. You go home and read John chapter 4 and read this message because, again, this offer of a living water is still on the table for us. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly. Lord, we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, that you would expose any areas of our life. God, where we're just being like the hypocrites, the Pharisees. God, where we have the sin and we just ignore it or we do something else, we focus on someone else. God, I pray that you would use this time to convict us of the areas of our life that we need to work on. Lord, for people who don't know you this morning, God, we pray